Hello, this is Guardian Daily. I'm Michael White in Manchester, where David Cameron has told delegates to put on a show for the British people. Let us make this the week, not when we talk to ourselves, not when we spend all the time talking about our opponents. Let this be the week we talk to the country. And I'm John Dennis at The Guardian's office in London. In other news today, why China, along with the world's poorest countries, have accused the wealthiest nations of sabotaging negotiations on climate change. The EU, the US, Britain and the rich countries led by America are fundamentally, I'm using their words, fundamentally sabotaging the the Kyoto Protocol. And why MI5 suspected three Labour MPs of being Russian spies? MI5 built up an enormous amount of number of files on, quote, subversives, unquote, during the Cold War. And sometimes, I think, with the help and encouragement of ministers. First, here's today's headlines. If the Conservatives win the next election, millions of people have to work an extra year to help pay for the budget deficit. In a speech to the party conference this morning, the Shadow Chancellor, George Osborne, is to say he wants us all to work until we're 66. He believes that would save £13 billion a year. Labour plan not to bring in the change for another decade. The Chancellor, Alastair Darling, is making his own bid to cut the budget deficit with a pay freeze for the public sector. He's writing to the salary review bodies asking for no pay increase for a year for top civil servants, heads of quangos, judges, senior managers in the NHS and GPs. He wants other workers only to get a 1% increase. After the earthquakes, tsunamis and typhoons in East Asia, India is now suffering serious flooding. Heavy rain in the south has led to 10 million people being made homeless. 250 have died. The rains follow the worst drought in 40 years. Prisons could be facing a catastrophe of widespread disorder by inmates, according to the president of the Prison Governors Association. Paul Tibball is speaking to his annual conference today. He says the government's plan for a 7% cut in spending on prisons will mean prisoners losing visiting days and being locked up in their cells for longer. The problem is that the prison population has ballooned to more than 84,000. After only six weeks, Portsmouth Football Club has been sold again. Suleiman Al-Fahim has sold 90% of the shares to a Saudi businessman, but will remain as chairman as a minority shareholder. He'd been unable to raise the finance to run the club, and neither players nor staff have been paid this month. All Hotmail users are being advised to change their passwords. A list containing 10,000 names and passwords has been posted to a website. Although it only includes usernames beginning with A or B, it's likely that more details have also been stolen. The morning papers are dominated by politics. As the Financial Times puts it, Tories and Labour match talk of cuts. The Tories get the main headlines, get set to retire at 66 in the mail. Millions will have to work a year longer under the Tories and the Telegraph. The mail goes on to explain that it's to pay for Gordon Brown's spending spree and plug the black hole in Britain's finances. But the Times links the story to an opinion poll showing that voters are not totally convinced by the new Conservative leadership. It writes, new leader, same old party, say most voters. Our paper leads with the apparent suicide of two teenage girls who disappeared from their care home near Glasgow. The headline reads, they walked out of the care home, then, hand in hand, they leapt to their deaths into a river. The Sun reports the suicide of comedian Matt Lucas's former partner, Kevin McGee. It says TV Matt's ex-love hangs himself. The couple split up almost a year ago.
Finally, the Telegraph finds an excuse to print a big picture of Carla Bruni, the wife of French President Sarkozy, on its front page. Her new website crashed within minutes of its launch yesterday because so many people logged on. As the headline puts it, Carla Frenzy sends website crashing. There's more news and sport throughout the day on guardian.co.uk. I'm Michael White in the Manchester Central Conference Arena where the Conservative Party is trying to move the agenda on to welfare, reform and other policy goodies and the economy after two days of mixed messages on Europe. Let us make this the week, not when we talk to ourselves, not when we spend all the time talking about our opponents. Let this be the week we talk to the country about our plans, about our vision, about our team about how we can bring change to our country. All Labour did last week was talk about us. And you know what? A lot of it comes down to this. Don't risk youth and inexperience and change because, after all, we've been doing such a great job. <laughs> what planet are these people living on? And you know what? If the charge is youth enthusiasm and energy, I plead guilty. We'll hear from our head of business, Dan Roberts, later on as George Osborne puts the finishing touches to one of the most important speeches of his career. For now, though, the party's in a buoyant but careful mood, not triumphalist. Nobody's getting carried away, least of all party chairman, the redoubtable Eric Pickles. Beyond a no illusion... The general election is not in the bag. We still, we still have a mountain to climb. To form the next government, we need to take 117 seats. We, the Conservative Party has not done that since 1931. Words echoed by his fellow Yorkshireman, Shadow Foreign Secretary and, of course, former party leader William Hague. But whatever our successes... And however much the country cries out for change, we must never allow one morsel of complacency to creep into our campaign. We must be conscious that the system is stacked against us, that Labour only have to draw to win a majority in the House of Commons, but we have to win by some two million votes to do the same. But the star turn of the conference so far was, of course, you guessed, Boris Johnson. He took to the stage as dishevelled as usual and got a standing ovation even before he cracked his first joke. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's... Thank you. It's great to be here, folks. It's, it's absolutely wonderful to be here in Manchester, one of the few great British cities I have yet to insult. And... Uh... <laughs> I, I, intend, I intend to keep a clean sheet today, my friends, because if we can win in the capital, uh, then we can win in Manchester and in any inner city in Britain. It is time for a new and energetic Conservative administration to sort out this country's finances. It's time to give the British people back their pride and their trust in their political institutions in this country and in its leaders. Folks, it's time for change. And the Conservatives will give you your money's worth and they'll give you change as well. Thank you. Thank you. And we 
bumped into Andrew Jimson, sketchwriter of the Daily Telegraph, who's also the unauthorised biographer of Boris Johnson. Legend has it that Boris offered him £100,000 not to write it. Is that true, Andrew? It is absolutely true. Boris thought that, the, that, that my book might damage his, his, his otherwise... Um, Rather well, rather bumpy ascent to Ten Downing Street. So he, he, yeah, yeah, he, um, he, he did. He offered me astonishing sums of money not to do it, but and yet like a fool, bo- I, re- I reject. But yet you were rather kind. You were severe on his occasional shortcomings and moral failings and uh, other disasters, but you were generally quite kind. What did you think of his speech today, by Boris standards? Well, Boris cheered people up, and he can't, he, he can't see a, a show without stealing it. And he really, I think deep down, he, he really thinks that. It should be David Cameron with the walk-on part and Boris playing the main main role. You don't suppose when he said we ought to have a <laughs> referendum that he was stirring up for Dave because that was off-message, well, wasn't it? At the end of his Daily Telegraph um, column, he pays tribute to Cameron's courage on Europe. But, of course, Cameron hasn't shown much courage. He, he just doesn't want to say what he's... Well, he's shown the courage not, to, not to, to, to be accused of vacillation. So Boris, yeah, of course, he's teasing. He's teasing old Dave and destabilising him and playing to the gallery at the Tory conference. There's a programme going uh, out this week about uh, the <coughs> Mullingdon Club, of which Boris and George Osborne and David Cameron were members. Cameron was terribly embarrassed about it on the Ma programme, so he said. Does he mean it? No, he doesn't. He's, he's got a thicker skin than that. This, this Bullingdon Club, it's, it's a subject of enormous interest to middle-class journalists who went to Oxford but weren't elected to the Bullingdon Club. Uh, I didn't go. I didn't even stand <laughs> to be elected. <laughs> Nor are you middle-class white. But um, no, we, well, the point true. of point is it's a nursery of statesmen. Radek Sikorsky, President, Foreign Minister of Poland, George Osborne, Boris Johnson, um, David Cameron. They, they learn how to, how, to, how to carry off things which would Im- embarrass other people. They um, learn how not to hold their drink and how to be rude. <laughs> to waitresses, so far as I can see from well. my Cornish, lonely, proletarian standpoint. Well, I, I, we can rely on you to keep the class war sort of alive and, and kicking, but this time you're on the wrong side, White. The Telegraph's Andrew Jimson. Uh, well, if Boris provided the stardust, the party faithful were keeping their feet firmly on the ground, publicly at least. No one's breaking open the bubbly or counting their chickens over next year's election result. Well, it's, it's superlative, I have to say. I think the quality of the speakers is excellent. I mean, like? I love Boris, especially. Well, I think he talks a lot of sense, and I live in London, yeah. so I'm hoping, from a selfish point of view, that there'll be... You don't be... ever feel he's sort of winging it. He's no, he's a very bright man. Yes, I he mean, is. The clever people sometimes wing it. Well, I never know what he's going do. to say well, next. Well, everybody wings it. That's life in politics, isn't it? OK. How confident are you of doing what Boris did last year next time and winning the election? Well, as he said, I don't think it's in the bag. We'll have to wait and see. What Absolutely. do you think of Manchester? I'm originally from Manchester, but I left 30 years ago. I think that says it all. But does it say the city has changed a great <laughs> deal for the better? I do, you know, I, I didn't realise we could do this. It's, it's, it makes me proud of being a northerner. Yeah. Excuse me, sir, we're from the Guardian Video Audio Unit Sorry. asking people what they think of the conference so far. Well, it's only got started. Well, it's been a rip-roaring start. You've had Boris. Well, Boris is, yeah. Does Boris make you laugh? He does, yes. Makes everybody laugh, that's, doesn't that's he? What about uh, the election? Is, is it in the bag? No. Because there's too many people that could sit at home and, and think nothing can happen, nothing can be done about the troubles. That's what I'm concerned what about. What sort of nothing can be done? Well, they when just say, say give up. And they just say, people don't, don't give up, do they? I think they do. When you say that, what, what troubles do you mean specifically? Well, no, the whole government trouble at the moment. The, the financial, financial position. Thing. Is that what yeah. worries you most? And, and, and the danger to jobs. I mean, I'm retired. I'm fortunate I'm retired with a decent pension. I didn't get it cocked up by Brown, you know, grabbing £5 billion a year. Very glad to hear you're all right. We're asking people, how are they finding the conference? 
I've only just arrived, so... You wish, Boris? Yes. Are you confident of winning the election? I don't think anyone can really be confident at this point. Funny, everybody's so cautious. Well, it's the times that we're living in, really. What do you mean by that? The economy, well, international kind of affairs, everything. It's just nothing is certain. You can't say we're going to win without, you know, putting all the groundwork from now in between the elections. Yeah. I should tell the listeners you're wearing a beautiful blue top. It <laughs> goes with the party colours perfectly. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. We're um, uh, from the Guardian Audio Unit. We're asking people how they, what do they think of the conference. What's going to happen? Well, I'm hoping we'll have a very uplifting conference. Uh, very much looking forward to it. Very much looking forward to the leader's speech on Thursday. Are you confident of winning the election? Optimistic. Uh, but of course, we are, well, I'd like to think we are confident, but there is a long way to go yet before we uh, arrive at uh, next May. Excuse me, madam, you're looking cheerful. Oh. Um, the, um, we're from the Guardian Audio Unit. What do you think of the conference so far? Absolutely brilliant. What do you like best? Just the whole buzz and to actually wait to hear the announcement of new policies. And are you confident of winning the election? It's never in the bag. Striking that, that nobody was going to say outright, course we're going to win. This afternoon, all eyes will be on Shadow Chancellor George Osborne. He'll be attempting to shake off accusations that he made the wrong call in the year of financial recession and tough decisions which saw governments of all shades propping up banks around the world and pumping money into the economy. Last week, the Chancellor, Alistair Darling, uh, joked that the country needed real grown-up politicians in charge of the economy, i.e. not ones in short trousers like you, George. Yesterday, Osborne gave delegates here in Manchester a taste of what's to come. We are going to talk about the next chapter in the history of this country's enterprise and innovation. And we do so at a time when Britain faces a jobs crisis. One in five, one in five young people cannot find work today. There are two and a half million people who are unemployed. There are more people, more children, growing up in workless households in this country than any other country in Europe. And there are five million people who have been on out-of-work benefits even before this recession started. We have got to get Britain working again. Dan Roberts is the Guardian's head of business. Here's Dan's tips for what to look out for. Well, later today we're expecting two big speeches for anybody following politics or the economy, and that's Ken Clark and George Osborne. And this will be quite a crucial day as everybody's expecting them to flesh out exactly what they would do to turn the economy around. And also perhaps to answer some of the criticism over the last year or so that they've made some of the wrong calls on the economy. On day one yesterday, we had an interesting announcement um, that would bring some cheer to small businesses. Um, Tories have promised to scrap national insurance contributions for any start-up for the first 10 employees. Now, this is quite token stuff, but nonetheless, for a party that's trying to kind of reposition itself as the, or position itself as the party of small business and enterprise, this is symbolic of the kind of stuff I think we're going to get more of today. Quite pointedly, though, we didn't get any references to the banks all day long. At Labour in Brighton last week, you could 
couldn't move for politicians talking about um, the greedy bankers and um, they've been conspicuous by their absence today in, in Manchester. I expect there'll have to be some reference from Ken Clark and George Osborne on this. In particular, I think George Osborne could be quite tough on bonuses. Um, he's, uh, he's been increasingly vitriolic in, um, in interviews on this, so it'd be interesting to see if he puts any policy flesh on that. Dan Roberts there, and he'll be back tomorrow to give you his verdict on George Osborne's sums. Last night saw the final instalment of The Guardian's series of conference fringe debates this year entitled How to Fix Politics After the Scandals of uh, 2009. Previous debates have seen the Lib Dems call for electoral reform and David Miliband give his support to open primaries for selecting candidates. Last night, Nick Bowles, one of the great new hopes of the Conservative Party, had his say. Bowles is standing as Tory candidate in Grantham, where a certain Margaret Thatcher first made her name and more recently the sitting MP Douglas Hogg famously repaired his moat. I'm delighted, I'm sure everybody in this room is delighted that the um, most senior political sage on The Guardian has decided that our winning the next election is inevitable. Um, I think probably Michael White is alone in this room in thinking that's the case. Um, We still have a huge amount to do to prove that we are worthy of this. And I think that one huge aspect of that is proving that we are, in fact, going to do politics differently than has been done by Labour and Conservative governments for decade after decade after decade. And the key defining feature of the way that politics has been done by both major parties since the Second World War is centralism, is decisions being made in the centre by a few politicians at the very top and many unelected leaders of quangos and organisations. And that has led to a situation where once every four or five years you get one chance, one vote, to express all of your views on every subject. Because all of those things are run and all of the important decisions about them are made by people who are elected by that one vote. Now, is it any surprise that voters don't take much interest in politics if that is the only way that they are given a chance to express their opinion. And I think that is the way you do it. You introduce more local decision-making with directly accounted people, accountable people making it. You give local authorities more free powers to, to shape housing, to shape environment, to plan their local transport networks. Then you might get people voting again because they'll see it's making a difference. But having one vote every four years to determine your view on every subject under the sun is sort of like having no vote every four years other than who should be Prime Minister. And my choice is David Cameron, but I want to trust the British people a bit more than that. Well, it's been... A satisfactory conference. Uh, Party officials are delighted uh, that we tell them it's very boring so far. A bit flat in the hall. Somebody blames the acoustics. A bit cautious. Uh, Don't count our chickens before they're hatched. I'm sure they're dying to count their chickens, but they're not going to be caught on the television camera counting them because they all remember what happened to Neil Kinnock in 1992 at the Sheffield rally. Some people blame that, not the Sun newspaper, what happened next. And the Tories remember these things. They're taking no chances. Michael White at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. My name's John Dennis. Coming up in Guardian Daily, the Nobel Prize for Medicine has been awarded to three scientists for their work on the ageing process. Effectively, that would make our cells immortal 
and you know the hope being it makes us immortal as well. But first, at UN climate talks in Bangkok, the world's poorest countries have accused richer nations of trying to sabotage a treaty on global warming. China, along with 130 developing countries, have showed frustration at the slow pace of negotiations ahead of the crucial summit in two months' time in Copenhagen. With the details in Bangkok is our environment editor, John Vidal. There's an enormous split emerging between poor countries and rich countries here at this conference in Bangkok. The poor countries are represented by what's called the G77, which is a UN group of 130 countries, and that works with China. Now, they have, there's always been a historic problem. What they're saying now is that the EU, the US, Britain, and the rich countries led by America are fundamentally, I'm using their words, fundamentally sabotaging the, the Kyoto Protocol. And that is the agreement which all the world signed up to uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, to reduce emissions. And they're saying that, uh, that, that America is now effectively taking the rich countries off on their own and they're going to um, negotiate a separate treaty. Um, and the poor, the, the poor countries are absolutely furious about this because they spent 20 years trying to get the, what they call the best deal possible, uh, which protected their rights and their interests. And now they think that America and the rich countries are trying to sabotage that. Another interesting thing that's come out of these discussions in Bangkok, John, is uh, from Interpol um, in the uh, International Policing Organization. It's, it's warned that um, organized crime um, is cashing in on deforestation. What's all that about? Right. Well, this is really interesting. What's happening is that if, if, if there's going to be money passing between rich countries and poor countries, what the rich countries want is a system where they don't actually have to do very much themselves uh, to, to, to cut. So they've identified forests as the, the one big area where they can raise an awful lot of money through what's called carbon trading, carbon emissions offsetting. So in other words, if Britain could not uh, reach its own targets and timetables, then it would go to Gabon or we go to Congo or Brazil or whoever country with a lot of forests. And they say, right, okay, we buy... Um, emission credits from you guys um, and uh, you've got vast amounts of forest here's a few hundred million quid and it all sounds absolutely fine the money goes the, the forests are protected and uh, um, and the rich countries get their uh, get their cuts effectively uh, the trouble is what's happening now is people are realizing these are vast sums of money and we're talking 20 30 40 billion dollars a year passing between the rich countries and some of the poorest and and least uh, policeable countries in the world. And Interpol has just woken up to the fact that, well, actually, there's no way. There are no police forces in Congo. No one can verify. No one can check on these things at all. So it's not just that Interpol. There's a lot of NGOs now, a lot of groups are saying, well, hang on, who's going to protect the, uh, the people who live in the forest? And the hundreds of millions of people who depend on the forest. And so there's a whole set of questions, you know, like, are the loggers going to be able to use it as a way of subsidizing their logging? So suddenly, this was this was the great plan of the of the rich countries was to get the poor countries to basically become the source of of enormous funding for uh, for emissions. Um, and uh, now even that seems to be uh, questionable because there's some very very fundamental, profound questions which are being asked about that, of which Interpol is just one. John Vidal in Bangkok, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk/environment. 
Also on the Guardian's website, a pilot writes about the long hours culture in the job. Guardian.co.uk slash transport. As McDonald's opens a branch near the Louvre in Paris, we consider the worst concessions in the world. Guardian.co.uk slash G2. And David Tether wonders whether Tracy Emin should move to France, as she's threatening to do because of the UK's 50p tax rate on the highest earners. Have your say at Guardian.co.uk slash arts. Three scientists are celebrating today after winning the most prestigious prize in medicine. It's the first time the Nobel Prize for Medicine has been awarded to two women at the same time. Elizabeth Blackburn of the University of California and Carol Gredier at Johns Hopkins University, along with Jack Joshtak at Harvard, have won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their study of the ageing process. With the details is our science correspondent, Ian Sample. What these guys identified was that um, if you go inside a cell, and this is almost any cell, it doesn't have to be human, it can be from amoeba up, you find them in plants and all sorts of, all sorts of life forms. If you go inside a cell, the chromosomes that hold the genes, um, our entire genetic code is kept in 23 pairs of chromosomes in almost every cell in our body. If you look at those chromosomes, um, these researchers identified that they basically have caps on the end, a bit like the plastic tips on shoelaces. And through a whole series of experiments that I won't go through, they identified that these caps actually protect the chromosomes when the cells divide. So obviously in our bodies, cells are dividing all the time. And as that happens, you need these caps to stop the chromosomes sort of fraying away with time. Um, it's, It's actually crucially important because if you didn't have those, every time a cell divided, you would lose a little bit of your chromosomes and so a bit of your genes, which would cause you untold medical problems. Um... It's also really interesting in that if you have defects in these or the chemical that produces these end caps, which are called telomeres, you will age a lot faster. Um, so if you actually look at old people and look at the, the telomeres in their cells, they're often a, they will be a lot shorter than they'll be in someone who's very young. So they kind of are, are intimately involved in the aging process. They're not the only thing involved in aging, but they're certainly a key part of it. And how will this research affect the way that um, medical scientists operate now? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, as soon as people noticed that these uh, these telomeres were fairly intimately involved in the uh, aging process. People thought, what if we could uh, produce more of them? Not more of them, but make them more robust, or we can make more of the chemical that produces these things in the first place. So it stops it wearing down and keeps our chromosomes even more intact. And effectively, that would make our cells immortal. And, you know, the hope being it makes us immortal as well. But the, um, you can actually see that happening in nature already, and it's called a cancer cell. Um, cancer cells are unique in that they're, the telomeres, they don't break down as the cell divides, and the cell keeps dividing and dividing and dividing, and lo and behold, you have your tumor. So almost you could say that the scientific uh, community faces this question of, do you want to go and extend life? But if you do, you want to make sure you're doing it without causing people tumors, because it's a very similar process involved. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. The first official history of MI5 is published this week. It's called The Defence of the Realm, and it's been written by the historian Christopher Andrew, who's had access to MI5 files. It sheds new light on how the security service viewed British left-wingers during the Cold War. Three MPs, John Stonehouse, Bernard Floud and Will Owen, were thought to be Soviet agents. Richard Norton-Taylor is our security editor. 
This official history by Chris Rando at least has, he had access after all, unlimited access, we're told, to 400,000 files in uh, MI5 archives. And um, they do show that, for example, in the early 60s, going quite a long way back now, when Labour uh, leaders, Gateskill and uh, Wilson and so on, were concerned about some of their lefty, or, ex or extreme left, if you like, um, MPs. And uh, they were concerned, as they were trying to get into government, they didn't want these people to embarrass the government if they're found to have links with Moscow and the Soviet Union and so on, and with communism generally. So they actually asked, these, these uh, Labour leaders asked MI5 to check up on a whole list of of, of their own MPs. So it was, it was the ministers taking the initiative. Equally, I think, in the past, um, or rather later on, Thatcher during the minor, Margaret Thatcher during the minor strike in the mid-80s, for example, um, encouraged MI5 to um, follow Arthur Scarborough and other miners' leaders um, because they were, um, they were the enemy within, as Mar Margaret Thatcher called them. Earlier on, under another Labour government, under Harold Wilson's first Labour government in the 60s, where there was a minor a seaman strike, a seaman strike, and Wilson asked MI5 to um, check out on the leaders of the strike, the union leaders. And uh, Wilson used this phrase, a, a tightly knit group of politically motivated men. That was about the seaman strike in the 60s. And that, we learned from this official history, that phrase was coined by MI5. Wilson used it. Well, what about the uh, probably the most infamous um, alleged case of um, uh, activity by MI5 in Cold War Britain, which was the um, alleged plot to destabilise Harold Wilson's Labour government in the 1970s? What does this official history of MI5 say about that? Yeah, although, ironically, in a way, as we've heard, um, Wilson as a leader wanted to, MI5's help to sort of out or finger some of the more embarrassing left-wing members of his government. Um, he was also he became sort of paranoid about MI5 as well, and there was certainly an attempt by certain sort of freelance attempt really by certain people uh, to destabilise or smear Harold Wilson. Now Christopher Andrew in his book dismisses all this as conspiracy theories. Peter Wright wrote a book some people may remember in the 1980s, which Thatcher tried to stop. But failed to do so. Spy where he talks, spycatcher. Where he where he talks about. Um, originally, he talked about a, a group of thirty MI5 officers. In fact, at the end, he said it was just a handful. The, but the, uh, Chris Vander in his book dismisses all this great conspiracy theory, but still leaves. He can't dismiss it completely because there is hard evidence that some actually wanted to heavy sort of MI6 guy, a guy called John uh, George Kennedy, and others did actually try to, to, to smear Wilson. They were doing it. It, was, it wasn't an MI5 official plot. Of course it wasn't. But it was a group of freelancers, or a certain amount of freelancers. Also, it was a time of strikes. This is 1970s, it is. A uh, number of you know, big strikes in Britain at the time. And there was stories about how Mountbatten and the Queen Mother and other right-wing generals, or ex-generals, were concerned about the way Britain was going. And they contacted certain members of the... Security Intelligence Services. So it can't be dismissed out of hand. I think it may be exaggerated by some writers at the time. But um, Christopher Andrew, not surprisingly, I suppose, dismisses it more or less completely as a, as a conspiracy theories gone mad, although he's not entirely uncritical of MI5. Richard Norton Taylor. Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe produced today's edition of Guardian Daily, along with Phil Maynard in Manchester. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.